broader sense. Um, first, considering this isn't an isolated prayer. They didn't just stop on the road and, and come together as disciples with the Lord. This, is, this has been really closely woven and integrated what we've seen. We haven't gone through it in detail. I encourage you to read it. But John 13 through 16 to read this whole farewell discourse. And, and in all of this, Jesus had just spoken about his great, these great revelatory and doctrinal truths about his Father, about our God to them. And now he speaks to the Father on their behalf. But in that, I would say we could characterize this, to summarize it in a sense, is Lord's, the Lord's farewell prayer of covenantal mission. So that's why I left this up here. I'll say that again, but his farewell prayer of covenantal mission. Because what do we see even in this brief first five verses? He's really disclosing for us in summary in a, in a supreme fashion, in a sovereign fashion, the full redemptive plan of God, isn't he? And you see it spelled out, drawn out, in, in, in kind of an order, of obviously an orderly fashion, but how it's going to be accomplished throughout these 11, soon to be 12, then 13 if you count Peter's appointment of casting lots. But through these apostles who are creating, who build upon this foundation of Jesus Christ, and then ultimately through the church. So we see here that this full redemptive plan, but um, several scholars reading through a plethora of, of, of studies and, and insights on this, that this prayer is not a verbatim dictation from the lips of Christ, but rather it, it's, it's a composition of John the Apostle, obviously, under the inspiration, the guidance of the Spirit, because realize this is written many years after Christ had ascended. It wasn't written and dictated right at the moment he did this. But in this prayer it is a portrait, if you will. It, it's one of Christ Jesus, much like the prologue we see in John 1, 1 to 18. But here we see Christ set forth as, as the only beloved sent by the Father. And he is asking now in this prayer to be discharged from his soon accomplished work. You see his, his, his theme, his voice of fulfillment, and his desire, his intention, the predetermined purpose of him returning to his Father. And he's asking for that continuation of, of that glory filled, this, this glory filled redemptive work, having begun and, and, and is already into its fulfillment and will be in the lives and souls of his own and those. This by the Father himself, obviously. But what's unique here in compared to the other synoptic gospel accounts, although very brief, predominantly in Luke, where we see these brief intercessory interludes where Christ goes alone to pray. But here, it's not only that Christ is praying for some length and expressed in great detail, but he's praying in, in, in the presence of witnesses in, in front of the eleven so that they can all hear and by the Spirit's working remember and recall what he is saying. And for us, it's like we can 
pull back the curtains a bit and listen in to the Lord's Prayer himself. And and some could say wrongly have attempted to tie this particular chapter, John 17, to the synoptic accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, they think it has some relation there, but I, 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 can, I can understand where their thoughts are going because we see, although, although we don't see any direct evidence of suffering or personal physical agony going on in this prayer, we can, in another aspect, consider and see the glory that Jesus is praying for, that it will be most manifest in and through the cruelty of the cross. Kind of a paradox to think about that. We're going to get into that even more because it was at the hour. The hour was at hand. It was it was time, okay? So here we have, and captured in chapter 17 of this prayer, of Jesus in such very simple statements, very simple phrases, simple words, very comprehensible for us, yet very profound, very revelatory ideas and truths for us to believe and stand on. And I really pray as as in, in the midst of this study, just seeking the Spirit's understanding and overcoming our even our own ignorance in this and, and our own sin that that pollutes this this understanding this prayer and even our own lethargy so i've I've broken this down and have a lot of support for this in three sections basically starts out with jesus prays for himself not in some narcissistic fashion but for the glory of god for his own glorification and this is going to be based solely on his redemptive accomplishment, his finished work on the cross, in the tomb, through the resurrection, and his ascension. This is, this is why I pulled that in about this is his covenantal fulfillment. This is covenantal mission. But in reading these verses, did anything start to maybe conflict in logic and understanding in, in reading these? Anything come to mind? Right, right. Right, yeah. What he possessed before his incarnation, um, that it was God's glory. Um, he did not possess this fully in his incarnation. But in a sense, he did possess the glory on the earth because he revealed it to others, right? He came revealing the glory of the Father. And by finishing the work that the Father gave him, this this glory comes about. These are the questions we're going to look at and, and dig into and answer in this study. So Jesus prays for himself. We're going to look at verses 1 and 5 together because these are bookends of this introductory section. And this this last section of the overall farewell discourse that Christ is is presenting now in prayer, he begins with the apostle reiterating for us all that Jesus had conveyed in his doctrinal instruction, okay? The truth regarding his triumph, his victory over the world, where he was going, and all the simple language described to the disciples, and the promise of the comforter, the paraclete, and now his prayer is the capstone, and he's looking at the, he's adopting and looking at this long-range view 
one one that has a, a very valid expectation of of a glorifying victory through this this enormous conflict on the cross. So, in conclusion to speaking all of these truths, Christ demonstrates a, a very reverent and common posture in prayer for this time. He lifts his eyes to heaven, to the upper realms of the heavenly glory, and in his prayer. Beginning, we're going to look at verse 15, 1b, and verse 5. Two aspects of the themes here, or themes here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So in these two verses, there's two subparts that I want to look at in this genre of prayer. The mission of his prayer, and the basis for his prayer. Do you see here the mission of his prayer in 15.1b? Amen. Glorify me, right, that I may glorify you. This is, I'm sorry, 15.1. <laughs> there I go again, Russell. <laughs> I was following because I knew you knew that. <laughs> hey, I'm testing you. Wow. I told you I was stuck in chapter 15. Man. I, just, I can't, can't. Ah, Apart from him, you can do nothing right, right? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, dear. Thank you, Russell. So, Seventeen b yes, not 15-1-B. Wow. The mission of his prayer. So, simply, Jesus prays for his glory. He prays for his Father's glory in this, in this hour, in this predetermined, God-ordained time that has come, that is at his doorstep, that is dawning before him. Speaking of, obviously, his pending death, his crucifixion, right? Not just a normal death that we may incur, not cancer, not age, not organs shutting down, nothing due to what we incur because of our sin, right? This is Jesus' own unique, predetermined death to be carried out on a cross in the burial tomb in three days of silence and in his triumphant resurrection and finally his ascension. This is a very striking approach or reality to victory and to glory, isn't it? Completely opposite of what we would consider and think for someone to be glorified, to be considered majestic or mighty. You know, you would not want them ever to die. And this is what the disciples carried in their thinking many times, that he was going to come freeing them from Roman rule and oppression, usher in a new kingdom. Yet here he is telling them, which brought sadness and and discouragement many times and and confusion and denial, was, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross, which was, we know, the most hideous form of death in that time. But earlier, back in John 12, 
Jesus does talk about his glory in, in the example of a seed, a kernel of wheat that has to fall to the ground and dying so that it will create many seeds. But here in 17, 1 and 5, Jesus is speaking of his glory, associating with returning to his Father's presence that he knew before, before the world began. And both of these, in, in his glory, returning to his Father's glory, the glory that he had before the world began, rightly express and contribute to it, but, but more striking of the two is the glory, as I said, connected with the cross. And it's, it's really significant for us to note that this initial glory, this first glory that was going to be made manifest, the glory that was fought, the Father's appointed hour for him, did not result in our Lord's humanity as any excuse toward fatalism. He, he never faced the inevitable with the sense of indifference, right? He prayed. He prayed for this glory, this manifestation of glory to come, facing the inevitable in this pinnacle of, of most undeserved, absolute, necessary suffering. And, and in that we see this predetermined, decreed will of God, that this is the most manifest glorification may take place, and it is the most manifest glory of God. This should just really for us, magnify the surpassing wisdom of God. Does it not? Think about this. This Roman means of of abject, brutal, violent torture and evil will be and was and is for us Jesus' means of preeminent glory. For us to behold this, this full, visible, wasn't tangible for us. We're not in that time, but it was truly for these disciples. Presentation of, of the, really the eternal love of God to us and of his Christ and, and exercised in, in the most powerful, redeeming manner on our behalf. And this, this glory was seminal with the incarnation of Christ. We see that in John 1.14. We, we have seen his glory and we see, too, the very transformation of water to wine in Cana as a revelation of, of, of Christ's glory in John 2.11. And so is the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. But the supreme revelation in all of creation and redemption is shown for us through Christ and the cross and his resurrection and exaltation. Any thoughts on that? Any Meditations right now coming up on that. Did you consider that? Interesting that, um, kind of like how you were mentioning, I mean, throughout the whole of his life, that's what he's been about is the Father's work and the Father's glory. And you even see it all the way to the end where even the glory he is asking for is for the purpose of glorifying the Father. Right. And then at the end of that, in that sense, is when then he is fully glorified through his resurrection, ascension, and so forth. Amen. Always the redemptive, whole redemptive plan, right? It will benefit us absolutely, but it is all supremely for the Father's glory. For the redemptive work to take place, yeah. We're gonna, we're going to touch on that some more here in just a minute. Your question. So this this most this most excellent this most supreme glory 
that Jesus is speaking here is, is linked with the same glory he shared with the Father before the world began to, to Jesus' preexistence, okay? But what do we mean by this glory? How, how can we attempt, we won't fully in this life, we won't fully in eternity, we're going to be discovering and enjoying and, and marveling at this glory, but how do we, for the sake of our, our delight in Christ, and, and appreciating in our souls all that he has done for us. How do we attempt to define this glory? How can we get our minds at least part circumferentially around this glory of Christ? I attempted a definition, so bear with me. If you want to add to it, you're free to do this. So It could be described in a way, it may be described in a way that focuses on the manifestation of God the Father and Jesus the Son's character by the work of the Spirit for us to envision through the eyes of faith their worth, the fullness of their attributes, and the utmost infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfection. I can send that to you later if you want to look at that. But that's just... Focusing on the manifestation of God the Father and Jesus' Son's character. We have to do this by the work of the Spirit. This is not a natural inclination in our bodies, in, in our rationality, but to envision through the eyes of faith, which is so critical, the very worth and the fullness of their attributes and the utmost infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. And what's so truly amazing from this very finite attempt at this definition is, is this manifestation of glory that the Lord Jesus is praying for here regarding the triune God that has been disclosed throughout this, this farewell discourse does not reach its apex in some amazing, brilliant, overwhelming flash of light, right? But in sheer agony and triumph on the cross and in the tomb, empty tomb. So Jesus is praying here in such a way, and note, these two verses are not just a description, okay? These are a prayer to the Father asking by the Son, asking for himself to be glorified, and asking in such a way that the Father will so accept his Son's willing and obedient suffering by the suffering by the suffering, will bear forth his grace to men and culminate the restoration of his son to his pre-incarnate glory. And, and in this prayer, Jesus is praying that by his own glorification, through mean, this means he will and may and did and does glorify his father. In other words, there would be no glory to the father if the sacrifice on the cross was not accepted, Right? There will be no glory if the Son is not restored to his rightful place in glory in the presence of his Father's unshielded glory. Right? You agree? If this did not happen, grace would not be manifested. Um, There would have been failure. Divine mission would have failed. All the purposes defeated. But we have 
as from Ephesians and other passages, this very strong adversative, but God. Praise God, we know he did not fail. The purpose did not fail. But just think about Jesus Christ was praying this to show us something. What was he showing us here? Kind of goes back to Matthew 6. Who had their hand up? <laughs> Go for it, brother. Right. And so for him to put himself in the same place as the father, saying that he was one with him, they probably surmised he was blasphemy. Right. Proved it by his works. And so just going back to verse three, which says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right. And, and remember, too, this is an intimate group, too. These are, these are his own. Judas is gone. And to us, to those who understand this. You, no, you're right. You're right. But in another essence, very strong essence, this heartfelt desire of the son, and, and it, he's showing really an indescribable joy of what we studied in Matthew 6. Your will be done, hallowed Father. It's not my will. I'm, I'm, I'm here even as the God-man to do fully your will, no matter what it may require. I, I don't know that I would be willing to be nailed to a cross. You know, that, that was, we're going to get into those prayers on the cross, Lord willing, next month, but... That was a horrible physical death to face. And for him to say, no matter what, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. And with the joy, what does Hebrews said, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, bearing its shame. So given that, that this great mission, this glorious mission, or the charge of his prayer is that Jesus will be glorified, we can now see the basis in the next verse, the support or the support that Jesus presents to his Father in praying itself. And this is our second point B, the basis in 17.5. For Jesus to be glorified and in turn glorifying the Father, we go to verses 2 to 4, which is what Brother was going into. And beginning with verse 2, he says, Even as you, Father, gave him authority over all flesh that to all who you have given him he may have he may give eternal life so in this even as that begins verse 2 or just as or some translations just has as it, it's really used as a preposition here and and it ties 17.1b into 17.2, there are some relational ties that, that give way to a purpose here, why Christ is praying this. Because in 17.1b, we see really an imperative statement, glorify your son, okay? The purpose clause, or what follows that, 
that the Son may glorify you. And then in 17.2, we also have a statement, not so much an imperative, but a statement that says, you gave him authority over all flesh, the purpose clause, that he may give eternal life, right? So not a, not a perfectly mirrored parallel across these two, but, but do you see the connections here, these parallels with it? And we have to look at this. You have to look at it according to the nature of the authority that the Father has given the Son, okay? And, there, and there's two questions that, that come from this in, in looking at the nature of this authority. When was this authority given to the Son, and what is distinctive about it? So what's the, the, when was the authority given to the Son, and what's, what's distinctive about this? Because in verse 2, he says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, he's referring here to a decision in past, in eternity past, to grant Jesus authority over all the people on the basis of his obedient humiliation, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. So all of that was encompassed in this decision in eternity past. And this is very similar in character to what we just studied in the men and women's study in Philippians 2, 5 to 11 about Christ humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, right? To the glory of the Father was the ultimate outcome that Paul talks about. This decision made in eternity past on the basis Jesus can say, and on this basis he says, you gave him authority, just as Christ can refer to those to whom he gives eternal life as those the Father has given him, okay? So there's a predominant word here in this verse that screams mercy. You see it? Gave, gives, given, all, all from didomai in the Greek. It's, it's a gift of, of a peculiar, unworthy people, a gift of authority, a gift of eternal life, we're going to get into to this people a gift by the father already determined in eternity past and and to look at this authority christ is to have over all people that was promised in the past is because god alone with god alone his decisions and his doings are what we could call coextensive they they extend over time they are sovereign And to note here, Jesus actually receives this particular gift from the Father only after his cross work and exaltation. And this this is what we we hear Christ say in Matthew 28, 28, 18. At the final commission before his ascension, all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. Work is complete. I'm ready to go back to the Father, to that glory. Now all the authority has been given over to me because of the accomplished work. Now all of those that the Father has given to me now will come to me. Amen? So to look at this authority Christ is to have over all people was promised in the past, as I said, because God alone and his decisions and his doings are coextensive. Now we have the purpose. It's clear here that to all whom you have given him, he now may give eternal life, which, of course, depends, again, upon the full completion 
of the cross work, the grave work, the ascension, the exaltation of Christ. Because again, without any of this work, no cross work, no sin is forgiven, no resurrection, no paraclete, no conviction, no regeneration, no new life, no basis for any authority would have been established on, on which any of us can stand and should stand, which is on Christ alone. So in, in essence, the nature of the connection of these two verses in this prayer of Jesus can be stated like this, as if Christ was praying this, glorify your son, that is, accept my obedient suffering and return me by the way of the cross to the glorious radiance of your unshielded and most holy presence, just as you have already promised this exalted state to me. So the purpose of the Son's glorification, so that the Father may be glorified. The purpose of the gift of authority over all people, so that Jesus might give eternal life to all the Father has given him. Flow going okay? Understand any questions so far? Thoughts? Okay. What I just said? What I just said about the purpose? The purpose of the Son's glorification so that the Father may be glorified. Oh, before that. Yeah. So the essence of the nature of this connection? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Glorify your... He, this, is as if, this is a paraphrase of Christ's prayer. Accept my obedient suffering and return me by the way of the cross to that glorious radiance of your unshielded and most holy presence, just as you've already promised this exalted state. So that's kind of, I, I tried paraphrasing that in a reverential way to summarize that. But again, the purpose of his son's glorification, to glorify the Father, and the purpose of giving him authority over all people so that he might give eternal life to those that the Father has given him. Okay? Yeah, bro. Yes, it does. You're reading ahead. That's good. Yep, yep. That's that's where he expounds the details of this. Yeah, remember I said that these first five are like a redemptive summary, very concise. But there's a lot here. <laughs> there's a lot here. So to understand this relationship between verses one b and two of chapter seventeen, this is going to help us understand verse three, and and not see the verse. Verse three is not some parathetical statement. Christ didn't go. Oh, and by the way. He said, this, this is directly related and tied to the first two. This is eternal life. He, he, he wonderfully gives us explanations in his prayer of what he's talking about. This eternal life that, that uh, for those folks, those, those wonderful chosen creation that you, you've manifested now, your glory that you've given to me, this eternal life is so that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
And when thinking about the, this verse, about the knowledge of God, the importance of it, the nece- really the, the, the dire necessity of it for our lives and our walk, just thought of a couple, Hosea 4.6. God's people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Not, not facts, not information, not debate topics. Knowing him, knowledge of the Father. And Habakkuk 2.14 gives a great promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. But there's no excuse. There is no escaping it, right? So a very integral part of the new covenant reality that Christ is issuing forth and, and praying about here is that all of God's people will know him. The, the promise in Jeremiah 31 and, and Hebrews 8. But... If we're honest, I mean, I mean, can't we be lulled to sleep that if we just think knowing knowing God, that we think eternal life is just merely having everlasting life, a life that doesn't end, rather than knowledge of the everlasting One. So it's it's truly only knowing God which is eternal life. It's only knowing him that we are transformed within, where we are introduced to, where we are transferred into this new kingdom, into this new life where God's light shines, his truth shines, he reveals himself through his word and his His spirit does that sanctifying, transforming work within us. This is eternal life. This is why Christ prayed, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And, and the way or means of knowing him is not left to our own rationality or our own cultural influences. It's Christ, Christ prayed, we come to know God through the only means that the Father has defined as acceptable. How is that? How do we come to know the Father? What is the means that Christ defines for us as the only means acceptable in knowing God the Father? Right. It's in verse 3. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our only way. The only hope. The only life. The only truth. Amen. So this this is the point of verse 2. That the covenantal plea and the prayer of Christ for us to hear is this that for the Son of God to fulfill the decreed purpose of his mission, he must bring people to know God by revealing God, his Father, through himself, therefore by bringing people to know himself, making God's glory visible through himself to the very people his Father has given him. Wonderful logic. (laughs) I love it. Simple but so rich. This is the entire purpose of John 1.14, of, of him becoming flesh, of, of revealing God himself, revealing the word of God, dwelling among us. We, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All that God offers to us for salvation comes through the revelation of his Son, the word, and of course, in the regenerating and revelatory power of the Spirit. And this is why Jesus continues in his prayer in verse 4. 
I glorified you on the earth. I finished my work. My, my obedience is complete, knowing that, that the cross would be fulfilled. Having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And, and Jesus in his earthly ministry was revealing his Father's glory so that people would have a secure foundation for faith, for belief. And, and, and in simultaneously revealing his own glory, he reveals his Father's life and, and his glory. And for Jesus now to say he's completed, he has having accomplished, or better, by accomplishing the work on our behalf and of his elect, he's in fact looking back on the sustained ministry here on the earth, revealing his Father. And yet at, at the time, the very time of this prayer, it is at the cross where the greatest revelation of glory is yet to come. So this, this pinnacle, we've talked about this many times, this being the true pinnacle of all human history, the cross of Christ. It's where supreme revelation of his glory makes fully known the Father in his redemptive work, really unveiling for us to see the glory of the Father through the Son by the work of the Holy Spirit. And with this climactic revelation of glory yet to come, we can... For us, on this side of the cross, hear the words of Jesus, it is to tell us die. It is, it is finished. And here, our, our Lord, our Savior, is praying that the Father will glorify the Son and the impending work to be carried out, what we're going to look at in the next section, all the way to verse 26. But here in this, this lifting up of the Son, of, are the Father and the Son most clearly made known and where they are truly known in what is called, this is where eternal life is inaugurated in knowing him. So this, this monumental glorification of the Son in, in fulfilling and, and accomplishing and finishing this great redemptive event that was really revealed and prophesied for almost 4,000 years, it, it's, it is the only means of affecting this this goal of the son's mission, this this granting of true life of what we've called and talked about before is true humanity for the redeemed. It's what we experience in this. Those being completely unworthy, but by such great mercy have been given into the son's hand. And Jesus is praying for himself in this first section in a very special sense. Because this prayer carries with it for us a, a basis of perfect, perfect qualification that only Christ himself could fulfill and has fulfilled perfectly. And his prayer for himself here is not intended to be a pattern for our prayers. However, it does not restrict us. In fact, it should co- actually compel us to focus our prayers in such a way as to cry to God with all sincerity of heart of desire without reservation that that he and his will will be fully accomplished in our own lives do we consider the count the cost accounting the cost in this type of prayer for ourselves it might lead to a martyr's crown um, might mean unrecognized service or even even a quiet acceptance of of personal pain and suffering but in any case, even in looking at this, this summary introductory prayer of Christ's overall prayer, 
it really is the best prayer and best way for any of us to enjoy God's favor and blessing. And it bears great significance in our in our study and in our knowledge of God. So any thoughts? Any comments? Yes, brother. So I'm just thinking about like verse four and just like some of the practical aspects to of like our day to day living. And when you think about really the chief thing of man being to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, we see here that the way in which that was done, at least in Christ's life, was by accomplishing the work he was given to do Amen. to glorify the Father. So I'm thinking, like, practically for us, it follows the same pattern. Yep. That we glorify him by obedience, by walking according to his word. Right. Um, and so it's not our works. We don't do it to be saved. But as a result of being saved, we now Amen. work for the glory of God. Yeah. And in, in knowing him, we are transformed in such a way that our desire, our delight is not only as a recipient of his love, but loving him in such a way that we find delight in obeying him and that whatever he gives us in this life, it's by his hand. That's John 15, by the way. Yeah. Good examination point. May we do that? Seems like we should. That would be like the motivation behind our fruit. Yeah. Your fruit you produce should have that heart motivation. It should. It's just coming down to examining, like, are we actually doing this? Right. Because you consider his predominant work, majority of his work has been completed now. Yeah. So are we in the even in the midst of our lives or at the closing of our lives? Could we? Pray that, that, yes, I have glorified you. I've accomplished what you've given me to do. Not perfectly. We, we know that. It won't be. A, that's another caveat of ex- escape or excuse. But any other thoughts? Right. Right. He alone knowing what is yet to come because he knows that that hour has come. Yep. As uh, yeah, as from his hand for his glory, for our sanctification, which results in his glory.